listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for July 2019. Today's episode is titled, The Curse of Legalism. Management must build organizations with stakeholders who live submitted to the Lordship of Jesus and therefore are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Attempting to build with legalists is building with people who are under a curse. The end will be judgment, as happened at the Tower of Babel. A true Christian lives under the lordship of Jesus, submitting to his will and ways. Wise management understands that to build a God-honoring organization requires building with humble, submitted, and teachable people. Therefore, management must identify the legalists in the organization and seek to remediate them. If they cannot be remediated, they must be replaced. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, The Curse of Legalism. Well, this morning the topic is the curse of fig leaves as revealed by the law. This is Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Paul's clarification of the gospel of Christ began in chapter 1 of the book of Galatians and will continue through chapter 4. Chapter 1 focused on the singular gospel of the grace of Christ. Paul's singular calling and the singular revelation given to Paul of the truth of the gospel. In chapter 2, Paul validated his authority and the truth of the gospel, the grace of Christ, with the original apostles who commissioned him to proclaim his singular gospel. He concluded chapter 2 with arguably one of the most succinct presentations of the gospel that we have in scripture. It's Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, which in in the ESV reads as follows. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The gospel of the grace of Christ means that our sins have been imputed to Christ at the cross, and then the righteousness of Christ was imputed to us. Through double imputation, we are legally justified, made acceptable with God. Sin and death in us are defeated because of the work of Christ. Paul eloquently expressed this truth in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That is the truth of double imputation. He said this, For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So that's a clear statement, probably one of the clear statements of double imputation in Scripture. Some infer that sanctification is a form of works-based salvation. You see, when Paul talks about salvation, he includes not just regeneration, but also sanctification, and he includes glorification. Now, at any point in Scripture, he may focus on one or the other or maybe a combination. For example, in Galatians 2, verses 20 and 21, he focused on both regeneration. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Well, if you're dead, how are you alive? You have to be regenerated. So by implication, he's talking about that. And he's also talking about his responsibility to live righteously before God. And so he says, I don't nullify the grace of God by teaching that we are responsible to live live righteously before God. So he's talking about sanctification as well. 
So in verses, verse, the first uh, nine verses of chapter 3, he continues this conversation about sanctification and some common errors, particularly one common error regarding sanctification. That is a misunderstanding of the power that is, is required to be sanctified. You see, sometimes we get focused on it's our responsibility to be sanctified, which there's a level of truth there, but we have to remember that we don't have the power in and of ourselves to affect that sanctification. It takes the Holy Spirit. And so very early in Paul's argument in the first nine verses of chapter 3, he points out that, you know, have you begun in the Spirit? That is, were you regenerated in the Spirit? And now are you perfected? You completed? Are you sanctified by the flesh? And, of course, the answer is no. That's not true. You know, our sanctification is just as much a work of the Spirit as our regeneration. So you have to be very clear on that because it's easy to get confused. In verses uh, 10 through 18 of chapter 3, Paul explained why the law could never be a means of sanctification. In other words, the Mosaic law could never be the basis of the gospel. It would be easy, you know, to think, well, the law will not, you know, get us into the process of salvation. We can't get regenerated by the law, but maybe we can get sanctified by the law. He said, no, that does not happen. You can't do that. And the reason that can't happen is because our fallen nature, nature is still present in us. Yes, we are in Christ. We are perfect in Christ positionally, but our practices still reflect a lot of our, fallen, our former fallen state. And it takes the power of the Spirit working in us to enable us to overcome that fallen, fallenness in us so that we can obey Christ and walk with Christ. Not that we will ever be perfect at it. We will never achieve perfection in this life but we should be progressively growing and maturing in Christ. So this is the essence of what he wants to talk about in this section, verses 10 through 18, is to get us really clear that you can't begin with grace and then revert back to works. It's grace all the way. And how do you understand works in light of grace? So those are the big questions that he wants to address. So let's take a look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Let me read the text, and then I'll make some comments on it. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one gets justified before God by the, by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. You notice he's quoting Old Testament scriptures. He's making his argument. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, that's the imputation of our sin upon him. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards, that is 430 years after the promise, 
does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. In the ESV, this section begins with the phrase, for all who rely on the works of law are under a curse. The word rely on literally means from, from or out of, which intimates origination. In other words, this is talking about, you know, you, you're thinking about your salvation as originating from your own works. This sense of salvation from the penalty of sin and death originates from human effort rather than divine grace. And if you think this way, you are under a curse. The Mosaic law was not a curse. Rather, the curse was mankind's impotency, that is, inability to completely obey the law. In verse 10, Paul cited Deuteronomy 27:26, which states that anyone seeking to attain right standing with God based on human obedience had to be perfect. In other words, had to perfectly obey the law. If you disobeyed the law on any point, you were guilty of disobeying all of it. So it's a very severe and very high standard. So notice what Deuteronomy 27:26 says. It says, cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. And the people will say, amen. In other words, the people agree to this very high bar. Then there are other texts of scripture, both implicitly and explicitly projecting the same thing. For example, Jeremiah 11 verse 3 says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant. And then in the New Testament, James chapter 2 verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And even Jesus asserted that perfect obedience was required. In his interaction with some of the Jewish leaders, he said, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Now, to understand this text, uh, it's helpful to know that literally what this text is saying is whoever's doing the sin is a slave of the sin. In other words, the act of committing a sin enslaves one to that sin. The Old Testament, Old Testament Mosaic Covenant was a conditional covenant that prescribed how to be right in relationship with God based on human obedience. The covenant required perfection, which was and is impossible. There was nothing wrong with the covenant. The problem was the fallen state of mankind. Man was and is totally depraved in the sense of being unable to be able to obey God's law perfectly. But the Israelites did not understand this truth and presumed that they possessed the human potency to be able to obey the Mosaic Covenant when it was offered to them in Exodus 19, 5, verses 8. So here's the offer. The offer came from the Lord himself. He told Moses to tell the people, if you will indeed, this is Exodus 19, verses 5 through 8, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Moses went and told this to the people, and they responded by saying, 
all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So if you take the position that you're going to do something, you implicitly imply, you implicitly assume for yourself that you have the potency, the power to be able to do that. That was the critical mistake. And the Old Testament message, I would say the one of the big messages of the Old Testament is the fact that man does not have in and of himself, in his base nature, the power to fully, completely, perfectly obey the law. Right relationship with God under the Mosaic law required perfect obedience. To fail at any point was to fail completely. This is a very high standard and consequently the reason why the law could never be efficacious for saving anyone because mankind's fallen nature is impotent relative to perfect obedience. One of the great lessons of the story of the Israelites under the Mosaic Law was that humans are not potent enough to perfectly obey either individually or collectively. Therefore, mankind seeking to save himself or herself by obedience to a system of laws is doomed to fail. This is the curse of the law. Not that there's anything wrong with the law. Rather, the problem is mankind's fallen condition and therefore his inability to perfectly obey. Mankind is impotent. Because of human impotency, sanctification based on human works is impossible. The only solution for hu human impotency is divine potency. The Old Testament states the reality of, in the famous verse of Habakkuk 2.4, which is quoted by Paul here in verse 11 of Galatians 3. Paul says, the righteous shall live by his faith. This is a direct quote from Habakkuk 2.4. In verse 12, Paul reminded his readers that the law was not based on faith. And he cited an Old Testament text that offered the possibility of sanctification based on perfect human obedience. He said, out of quoting Le Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, he says this, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. You see, the possibility, the theoretical possibility is there, but it is actually impossible because of the lack of ability and power in human beings to be able to do it. There was nothing wrong with the law. The problem was man. Perfect obedience to the law is not possible. Paul was clear that no one could be sanctified based on obedience to the law. Later in Galatians 3, Paul will reiterate that the problem was not the law. He'll state this over and over again. Nor was there incompatibility between the law and the promise to Abraham. You see, there were two great events in the history of Israel. One was the promise given to Abraham, and second was the law. And understanding those two events and how they connect and how they relate is very important, and it's easy to get confused. The problem was the impotence of mankind to meet the requirements of a perfect obedience to the law. That's the problem with the law. It's not the law, it's man. Mankind lacked and still lacks the potency to be able to perfectly obey the law. Therefore, relative to the standard of perfection, mankind is totally depraved. Later in the chapter, Paul states this in Galatians 3.21, If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So he's pointing out that there was no way the law was ever going to work, and the Old Testament even said that, 
but it gave the Israelites an opportunity to experience it. I guess what God is saying to us is that we don't learn well by being told. We have to experience reality. We're rather kinesthetic people. We have to experience that it doesn't work, and then maybe we'll conclude it doesn't work. But there is no law that can overcome total human depravity and human impotency. The only solution is the grace of Christ in the singular gospel. The grace of Christ, <clears throat> grace of God is that Christ became a curse for us by dying on the cross in our stead. Moses noted that for a man to be hanged on a tree is a curse, Deuteronomy 21:23. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We receive the blessing of Abraham, that is justification by faith, and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit to facilitate our sanctification. This is what salvation looks like, the first two tenses of salvation. This is the only way to eternal life, right relationship with God. This is the singular gospel. Any attempt to be sanctified before God based on human works will fail because man in his base nature lacks the potency to obey perfectly. We have to be empowered. Sanctification cannot happen based on human works. It happens through the Holy Spirit working through us to transform us, to change us. That's what sanctification is. And it's not at the, ba at the most rudimentary level. It is not a human effort. It is a divine work in us that we have the privilege of cooperating with the Holy Spirit and, and, and achieving some lever, level of success with our own maturity in Christ. There are two indicators that one has received the blessing of the promise of Abraham, that is, faith and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 make it clear that faith is not a work. It is a gift. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul stated that those who receive the truth of the gospel evidence this reality by expressing faith and being sealed with the Holy Spirit. So listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. So you can see faith and the Holy Spirit now in us. And we, we would interpret this to mean that our faith comes from the Spirit regenerating us and then the seal of the Holy Spirit is the process of sanctification and work at us at work in us that others can see they can see the change in us and that's the evidence that we have truly been born again a seal is an exterior confirmation of an internal reality this intimates that Christ is building his church with people who express faith in him and are indwelt that is empowered by the Holy Spirit now let me uh, going to verse 15 through 18. Uh, let me just read that section real quickly again before I make a few comments. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. In other words, what he's talking about here is the relationship between the Old Testament law and the promise. And what he's going to say here is the law, which came 430 years after the promise, does not change the promise. And that's very important because the promise is what is what Christ came and fulfilled. The law was there to reveal the need for Christ. Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one. 
and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The blessing of justification by faith to all ethnic groups was given to Abraham and his offspring because and based on an unconditional promise from God. Hundreds of years later, the conditional Mosaic law was given to Abraham's descendants. Did the conditional law change the unconditional promise? Paul made it clear that the conditional law did not change the unconditional promise. As God explained later in the chapter, the purpose of the law was to reveal the depth of human depravity and therefore make it clear that the blessing of right relationship with God was possible only through the grace of God. Now to make his case that the conditional law did not alter the unconditional promise, Paul used several arguments. First, he compared the promise to a human contract. Once it is ratified, it is unchangeable. Secondly, he connected the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise to Christ through the seed line of Sarah, though he, that is Abraham, had two other seed lines. Third, the conditional Mosaic law was given hundreds of years after the promise was given to Abraham, and therefore it could not have altered the promise. And fourth, part of the Abrahamic promise was an inheritance, which was an unconditional gift. It did not come through the conditional Mosaic law. All of these arguments were intended to make it clear that the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant, salvation by faith based on the grace of God, was fulfilled through Christ. The conditional Mosaic law that required human obedience came hundreds of years after the promise and did not alter the unconditional promise. The Mosaic law was intended to reveal that man could never save himself. Only God could save man and he promised to do so. Finally, in verse 16, Paul gave us a glimpse of his hermeneutics. His argument connected the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise to Christ by making the distinction between the singular and the plural. Abraham had children by three women, which meant there were three seed lines. But the promise that was given to Abraham was only going to come through the seed line of Sarah the sole seed line of Sarah, not through the other two seed lines. And of course, the descendant that is being referred to is Christ. This carefully detailed distinction is a characteristic of grammatical historical hermeneutics, the hermeneutic at the foundation of classical Christianity. Well, let me just talk a little bit about hermeneutics as a point of theology. In the 17th century, rationalism as a worldview began to grow in its influence of culture and Christianity. Rationalism asserts that reason alone can explain reality, and many rationalists believe there's nothing beyond the natural, and these, these people are called naturalists. This thinking led to some to question the, his, the supernatural events recorded in the Bible, such as the virgin birth, the miracles of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the expected second advent of Christ. These doubts opened the door for questioning the veracity of the Bible. At first, questions focused on the historicity and the accuracy of the biblical record. In time, there were questions about the veracity of the actual words of the scriptural text. Initially, questions about the historicity of the biblical record were called higher criticism, 
and questions about the text were called lower criticism. These were technical terms that are generally not used today. Instead, the pedestrian terms today are historical criticism instead of higher criticism and literary criticism instead of lower criticism. History, <coughs> historical literary criticism were and still are largely the purview of liberals who reject classical Christianity. Implicit in their literary criticism was doubt about the inspiration of scripture. The response of you know, conservative classical theologians who embraced classical Christianity was a view of inspiration called verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal meant the words of scripture were divinely inspired and plenary meant that all of scripture was divinely inspired. Accordingly, verbal plenary inspiration was self-authenticated by scripture. Texts such as 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 intimated this reality. Furthermore, Paul in Galatians 3.16 seemed to assume a verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. He argued that the promised universal blessing was given to Abraham's seed, not seeds, and the seed referred to Christ. Paul intimated that the distinction, the distinction that is being expressed here between the singular and plural was of divine origin. Therefore, Paul expressed a respect for the details of Scripture he believed in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Every worldview assumes a hermeneutic. How one interprets Scripture is clearly a seminal presupposition of one's life and one's worldview. Paul was clear on his hermeneutic. To him, all Scripture was of divine origin and therefore carried divine authority. Now I want to make a couple of comments about curses and then I'll make an application here. The first time the word curse is found in the English translation of Scripture is Genesis 8.21. This is in reference to the flood and having cursed the ground by virtue of the flood. A curse was an expression of the judgment of God. It is the opposite of a blessing. After the flood, Noah built an ark, an altar to the Lord. The Lord responded to Noah's sacrifice by promising to never again curse the earth because of the fallen condition of mankind. You see, the flood didn't remedy the fallen condition of mankind because mankind continued after the flood in a fallen state. So that was one of the points of, that, of the flood was to illustrate that starting with eight righteous people did not eliminate the fallenness of mankind. In the Abrahamic covenant, the verse stated in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, the blessing of God was an unconditional promise given by God to Abraham. In Galatians 3, Paul explained that this blessing given to Abraham was justification by faith through Christ. That is the singular gospel. Correspondingly, Paul explained that seeking to attain right standing with God based on human works was doomed to failure because humans lacked the potency to be able to meet God's standard. To assume that mankind can meet God's standards based on his own works is a curse. Sadly, however, mankind widely assumes human potency, which is why mankind lives in a cursed state. Indeed, we need the singular gospel because there's no other solution to the default state of mankind. Mankind comes into this existence in a cursed state, and the grace of God through Christ is the only solution. Paul expressed this very eloquently in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Let me read that to you from the ESV. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
It's interesting. You walk, but you're dead. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now a little application here. Arguably the pedestrian view of the gospel today is simplistic. It is good news about how to avoid hell and go to heaven when one dies. Apart from this reality, the gospel seems to be largely irrelevant to life. The gospel is therefore a spiritual truth that has little to do with life in the tangible or natural world. Most presume that if they resolve the question of death by gaining eternal life through Christ, they can live as they wish. The professing Christians who think this way live self-centered lives seeking pleasure, comfort, and convenience. This lifestyle, however, is not Christianity and will not produce good fruit either now or in eternity. Those who profess to be followers of Christ but embrace a secular lifestyle are hypocrites. They presume to live in relationship to Christ as Savior but not Lord. Living under the Lordship of Christ, however, is an essential trait of a true Christian. Living under the Lordship of Christ is not, as some professing Christians presume, an option. True Christians live under the Lordship of Christ. This means they live to serve Christ, not themselves. There seems to be, be many who profess Christ today who seek to serve only themselves. These are hypocrites, pretenders, actors. They're inherently narcissistic. Their agenda is self-promotion, self-glory, and self-exaltation. They seek to do their will according to their ways. In any scenario, their standing question is, what's in it for me? Hypocrites do not grow and mature in Christ. True Christians seek to live under the Lordship of Christ out of a deep sense of gratitude for the grace of Christ in their lives. They are selfless servant leaders. They seek to promote, glorify, and exalt Christ. Their standing question is not what's in it for me, but what's in it for Christ. True Christians are marked by progressive sanctification and the understanding that their sanctification is empowered by the grace of God working in their lives through the Holy Spirit. Notwithstanding these good intentions, true Christians can still fall into the error of the Galatians, who reverted into thinking that sanctification was entirely up to them. Mankind innately, by nature, defaults to legalism as the means of sanctification. This is the way of the fig leaves. This is about human performance, trying to make humans acceptable with God. To be clear, even people who know the singular gospel of the grace of Christ can backslide into legalism. The grace of God in sanctification is a gift of the Holy Spirit who is empowering an empowering agent to enable the process of sanctification. Would we lose sight of this empowerment, we regress into thinking that we can sanctify ourselves. Legalism and sanctification leads to striving to please God in our strength. People who live this way look like hypocrites because they become so self-oriented. Everything is about them, being right, looking good, and winning, all seemingly 
in the name of serving God, but in reality, they're serving themselves. In the end, hypocrites and legalists are the same. Neither will be excellent workers. They will never be servant leaders. They will never sacrifice to serve others. They will never work for the good of the whole. Hypocrisy and legalism are deadly diseases that debilitate and produce dysfunction. Freedom to work with excellence, serve with excellence, and sacrifice for others comes through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit working to sanctify us. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit is a mark of the singular gospel of the grace of Christ and a predicate for living well in every area of life. The reason that we are teaching the SLA message today and trying to live that message is to model for others what it is to be sanctified by the grace of God, to live out the reality of the singular gospel, to die to self, to serve the will and way of Christ, to no longer be narcissists, to no longer be hypocrites, to no longer to be self-focused and self-consumed, but to surrender all for the will of God. This is the high bar. This is the high challenge. This is hard for anyone, but we must be about this. This is what we are called to do. If we truly are Christians, the mark of the Holy Spirit in us will be sanctification, progressively growing and maturing in Christ, never reaching perfection in this life, but continually growing and maturing. Now may God give us all the grace to step into that partnership with the Spirit and to grow and mature in Christ, to be sanctified, set apart for the purpose of God and live solely to serve Him. May we have that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. <music>